Hello, uh, bumper episode for you this week. Um, it's a bit of a two-in-one, so the first half is just a normal lap episode. Uh, we're going to talk about Mosin's international career, his time going through the county pathway as a state school kid, and then the second half is about his time studying and living over in Iran. So yeah, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think it was worth it, so I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of The Lap. Today my guest has played 299 games for Spencer, taken 419 wickets, with a best of 7 for 73, with 10 five-wicket hauls and average of 19.9. Welcome to The Lap, Mohsin Jaffrey. Thank you Cameron for having me. It's an honour to be anywhere with you, but especially in this programme. Oh, you're very welcome, man. Thank you for coming on. And you're actually, you're quite a coup for the show because you're our first international cricketer to ever appear. <laughs> yes, that is very true. <laughs> so, so tell us about the lengths of your illustrious international career. <laughs> and for who it was. I don't know if people even know who it would be for or that it happened. <laughs> yeah, so there is a country known as United Arab Emirates. You may want to Google. Oh, yeah, I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I was actually born in the UAE, and um, when uh, they found out uh, there is a lad who's playing county age group cricket who's born in the country, um, they thought, let's get him over and uh, see how many games he can play for us so whenever there would be uh, a tournament which I was available to play in they would fly me out um, you know when I say tournament I mean uh, Asia Cup <laughs> I, I had the chance to play in three Asia Cups under 15 17s and 19s and and uh, yeah that was that was me playing for UAE um, not enough to get me on Crick Info until I okay. was uh, <laughs> selected um, as the 12th man in a ICC Intercontinental Cup game against Namibia. Biggest game of the year, that. <laughs> definitely. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, I had a great time in Namibia. Um, we It was a four-day game, lost in two days. I had uh, two days to <laughs> go on a safari. <laughs> we did return the favour when they played home. Uh, we smashed them in two days, so that was good. But but yeah, that got me into Krakenpo, and you can search up Mason Jaffrey, and and it's very useful if you want to know exactly how what my age is, including the number of days. <laughs> in I the did year. notice that actually. I did a little look before I came on to you because I remembered that you had this Crick Info page, and I was like, "Oh, it's, it's twenty nine and two hundred forty five days. Fantastic!" <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So that's pretty much all I use that <laughs> that page for. Uh, but yeah, how old were it. you when you were picked as as the twelfth man? It's a very good question. I think somewhere between seventeen and nineteen. No, actually, that's such a lie. Sorry, it's between, <laughs> <laughs> like between fifteen and seventeen. That's really young. How? What was it? What was it like being so young in a kind of international men's side? Um, it was intense. Definitely, it was intense. But um, well, it was interesting because um, I felt that there was a lot that I could learn from them. But then I felt, even though I was young, there was a lot that I could give to them. Um, especially 
the levels of professionalism that I'd experienced at County and even in the junior setup, right? Okay. Um, so it was interesting. It was like, there was a lot of pressure, of course. There was actually, I became very close to actually playing the game as well because um, in, the, in the kind of pre-match warm-ups and the nets and stuff, uh, I bowled really well. And, um, and uh, I, think, I think it was just the age factor and it was just the game first time this really young kid is coming along like you know I think that's what held me back playing that game but it was it was I remember it being intense I remember it being you know well above my standard in, in every in every manner but but I think one thing I found about my cricket is I've always liked the challenge playing above me why was that the extent of it though what was there any reason you didn't go back and play again because if you're so young when you're first called up to be 12th man I would have expected. I would expect that story to go on to be. I played for them at seventeen, eighteen. Yeah, no. I mean, uh, the thing with UAE is, is um, like I've been very lucky when whenever I've gone back to the UAE because of my uh, obviously my dad being the godfather, <laughs> the head of the AJ Empire, um, having uh, you know the respect and stuff that he does in the UAE. I've been very fortunate whenever I've gone back. I've been able to. Uh, train with the the national you know uh, academy I've been able to netball um, when the different tournaments and stuff have been played there and um, and pretty much every time you know uh, I've been able to perform to a level where they've said to me that like if you move over here and you start taking this like on properly then you know you you are in for a shout I remember there was uh, there was UAE was playing against Ireland in a four-day game and um, uh, I was uh, net bowling at Ireland, and um, the um, the Ireland head coach, very famous guy. I'm very embarrassed to not remember his name right now. He's from the Caribbean. Um, uh, Simmons, Phil Simmons. Yes, He's the West Indies yes, coach Phil at the Phil. moment. Oh right, okay. So he was the Ireland coach at that time, and he was very <laughs> <laughs> very good uh, friends with my dad as well. And uh, after. Um, you know, I was done net bowling. Um, he spoke to my dad and he spoke to like the UAE kind of uh, senior staff as well. I said like, you know, th- this kid better not be playing against us. <laughs> and uh, and I remember even then uh, they said to they said to Phil Simmons that uh, you know we've told him to move over here and uh, he can have a shot. But I never, I mean, cricket by that time had really died died out for me. Right, like. Okay. Uh, uh, it was fun when I was 15 to 17, but there were a few major hiccups I had in cricket, which which really killed the love of the game uh, for me. Were those when you were in the pathway system set? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of good coaches. I'm sure I, I know there's a lot of good work that happens at Surrey, but personally and this is just my personal experience i understand not everyone would have gone through this but i felt both psychologically and technically um that was possibly the worst thing that happened for my cricket playing Um, at sorry yeah yeah it's a very harsh thing to say but uh you know the the lack of the lack of concern the lack of care uh by a lot of the seniors it was very evident because you weren't in the kind of yeah, like, I mean, I was in a very tough group of a group. Of, it was known as the golden years, right? We had 
you know, in the academy team, for example, we had uh, Jason Roy, Chris Jordan, Rory Burns. Um, it was pretty strong. And my, my personal competition was, was one of the nicest people I've ever met in cricket uh, by the name of Mahanthan Haranas. Um, Aaron Haranas, a uh, young yeah. brother. Um, and very, very good leg spinner. He was playing for England at that time. And um, um, uh, so he would come down and play uh, for Surrey. And, um, and of course, like if they had to choose between, you know, the, the one who's playing for England at the moment yeah. and the one who's like, okay, he's kind of in the Surrey setup, but uh, hasn't really pushed on. So, so they were always going to pick, um, they were always going to pick him in, in front of me. Which I understood. I, I wasn't annoyed about that. But uh, when you've been the leading wicket taker for two years running, and um, uh, and rather than okay, you know, some sort of support, some sort of help, and how you can continue to progress even if it's not with us and stuff, it was literally like kind of go away. Like uh, you know, we haven't selected you, and um, um, and in the end, I, I found out from someone else that. Um, uh, so when I was under 17, uh, I got picked a couple of times to play for Surrey under 19s. Um, I was playing academy, again, got picked a couple of times to play for Surrey Academy. And uh, I realised out of the six games that I, I had been picked for, five of them were rained off. And it was just a matter of, well, you know, we had nothing more to kind of go on. So I was playing like, when I was under 15s, I was playing under 15s. When I was under 16s, I played under 16s. I played. When I was under 17s, I played under 17s, and I performed. You know what? Well, I, I, you know, like I was definitely taking the most wickets out of everyone else. But whenever I was picked to play uh, something above me, which yeah. is, I guess, what they need to see. You know, if you, if you want to give this guy a junior contract or whatever, academy contract and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I guess like it just you know. It, it was always called up. I had, a, I had a very similar experience when I got called up for the inner London under-14s for the first time. <laughs> the, one, the one game I got picked for, which was the last game of the season that they just played for people, it basically had for people who hadn't been picked the whole time, just got mm. rained off. And that was the moment where I thought, well, my professional career is over. Yeah. That was the leap that I needed. But I thought, like, you know, at that time, if there was someone just to say to me that, look, this isn't the end of the road, right? Just put your head down, work hard, and you know, try try or swear or or continue playing. I would have, I would have, but it was that was that one year where I basically said I did everything. The reason I guess why I I I guess I couldn't continue was that just really took the wind out of me. That after doing everything which I thought I was supposed to do, yeah. um, you know, I, I, just to give you an example, we had um, my training used to be. Uh, in Guildford, Monday nights, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. And as a 15, 16-year-old kid, I used to uh, take the train uh, to Guildford. And that's a good, you know, 15, 20-minute walk from the station as well, right? And and at 10 p.m., I would leave, you know, again, like, on the train. Like, so you're giving so much. And as you know, like, we both went to Gravenie. Um, county timetables and stuff are in accordance with private school times right i was going to ask um, that how did you find your experience of the pathway differed going to a state school versus those who were kind of within a private school it was it was difficult again i had i had very good coaches who just told me straight up that you have to work twice as hard as everyone else simply because um you know these kids are playing uh you know 
every single day in their lunchtime, they can pad up and go to the nets, right? Yeah. Uh, that wasn't the case with me. So, um, um, so that was definitely like, uh, that was definitely there. Um, I, I mean, I was the only kid from state school there and uh, I definitely felt left out for sure. Um, you could tell that, you know, just the environment I was from, um, it was very different to the environment that the others are used to. So what do we connect on? Like, you know, what do we talk about? And it just, it, it just wasn't like that connection wasn't there. There were some individuals who were absolutely, you know, beautiful people, really nice people who I, who I could connect with. And I'm very yeah. grateful for, you know, for knowing them. Like, for example, uh, one name I'll, I'll throw out is uh, Zafar Ansari, right? Yeah. Um, um, he was the age group below us, but he was always, you know, very good. And uh, on a couple of tours, I was, uh, um, I was his roommate and uh, really, really nice guy, genuine, really genuine person, others uh, out there as well. Had the opportunity arisen mm -hmm. to go to private school, would you, would, was that something you'd have done? Um... My thinking was that um, at that time, you know, I was very comfortable with the environment at Gravely. I was a bit of a rebel for sure, but I, I like, you know, that was my uh, that was my arena in which I knew how to be a rebel in, right? And my thinking was that okay, I see a lot of kids wanting to go to private school so that they could eventually. Uh, get into counties and I thought well I'm playing county cricket already why do I need to go to a private school when I'm comfortable in this environment kind of thing right okay. so um, that was the main reason why uh, I didn't pursue it as such I was um, I was uh, there were two occasions which I remember where I was kind of forced into thinking about it okay. one of them was with uh, Whitgift School uh, in Croydon where um, uh, if you remember Ali Ayu, right? He used to go yeah. to victory school. So, so his dad used to push me a lot in my cricket when he realized like I was, you know, um, not as passionate. He used to push me a lot. So I remember one day he um, told me that we're just going to pick up Ali from the school. And uh, I thought, okay, sure. <laughs> you know, uh, went there and... Um, the uh, he ran into the sports hall and said to Mr. Ward, who was the head of cricket at that time, that you know, you, I've got this kid here, please have a look at him, he's really good. Da, da. And then Ali's dad comes to me and says, Okay, like you know, uh, you're gonna have a bowl. I'm like, I was wearing my Gravely uniform, <laughs> I had nothing, right? <laughs> so he he started looking at all the lockers and in one of the lockers he found this dirty rugby kit like just covered in mud right? <laughs> and he found these these like football trainers right <laughs> so <laughs> he told me to quickly put them on so I put them on <laughs> and I go to Mr Ward and, I, and he just looks at me you can imagine like you know what that's like right and um, um, he he quickly pads up and I bowled two balls at him I almost felt like, okay, this is a joke. They don't really want to give me a try kind of thing. So he padded up, went in uh, to bat. First ball, pitched on middle and leg, uh, hit the top of off. 
and he literally just took off his pads and gloves. I think he's wearing <laughs> one pad and his gloves, and he comes out and he goes, "Just join the net, like have a ball." <laughs> <laughs> so that was uh, that was interesting. I felt very awkward, surrounded by you know some of my Surrey teammates wearing this like dirty rugby kit <laughs> of some random stranger. <laughs> So that was one instance, which was, uh, which was interesting. But the other opportunity that I had was um, when uh, we managed to secure a fixture, Graveney versus Dunwich. Shut up. <laughs> I went to Graveney. That, that, that doesn't happen. <laughs> so <laughs> this was very interesting because, uh, yeah, so somehow we managed it. And, and we played on Dunwich's main ground. Right? Wow. And they played, they had, they, had their, they had their first team, including the overseas who was playing against us. And I think it was, sort of, it was supposed to be like a 30, 40 uh, over match, right? And uh, in the end, they decided that, you know, we looked like an absolute joke, right? And um, they decided to give us like a 20 over game, right? And um, in that uh, 20 over game, uh, what happened was um, we beat them. <laughs> now, granted, granted that, okay, like, you know, they must have messed around with the order and stuff like that. Like, you know, just to kind of have fun. And, and you could tell they, they, they weren't taking it as a serious picture. I don't care. That's my dream. I haven't gone to Gravy, which is to beat a private school. I, mean, yeah. we only, I only ever played the lanes once and we lost, yeah. obviously. But yeah. I've always been like, I'd love to just play one, beat one. Yeah, that that was a fun night. Like, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, you know, I don't blame them because uh, I think half of our squad was uh, wearing black shoes with white, <laughs> you know, playing on Dulwich's main ground. So, but, you know, I ended up, I took six wickets in that match um, and, uh, you know, just smashed around like 30 odd in no balls, basically. And uh, after that game, um, the the coach who was looking after the Dulwich team, he basically takes me aside and he says, you know, why are you going to grave me <laughs> it makes me so sad that that's like a conversation you're just like why would you go there you're good at cricket. yeah you obviously like, can't play it yeah so literally he was like i mean he he semi knew me from uh from you know playing for spencer and stuff um but yeah look i, I found that to be a common theme uh you know whenever people saw that i could bowl a bit and especially at county one of the questions I really used to dread, like really used to dread, was which school do you go to? Because uh, when I would say Graveney, the first thing would be like, oh, like, you know, is that some boarding school really far away at a place that we've just not heard? I'm like, no, it's an inner city state school. <laughs> I'd, I'd, and the, the changes of expression and how the attitudes of people towards me was very evident. Um, I think it was almost like, you know, they just felt uncomfortable. They didn't know how to speak to someone who goes to inner city state school, right? And um, it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't pleasant, but um, uh, I, I kind of, I, ch I changed my mindset to just thinking of it as being funny. <laughs> so I would just laugh at, oh, look, now they're not talking to me like they used to. <laughs> <laughs> So after you kind of fell out of love with cricket, what did you then go on to do? I think 
I think it's unfair to cricket, and I don't want to upset cricket because <laughs> you know <laughs> I still want to take my fifers. Uh, I think saying I fell out of love uh, may be slightly harsh. Okay. Um, uh, but yeah, like I, I, I fell out of love of pursuing it professionally. Let's right, say that. Okay, fair enough. Um, another passion I always had in my life was just, just, in, just being in the pursuit of knowledge, right? Like studying as much as I can. Um, you know, if I ever found out something which I just did not know about, I would have to read it. Like I'd have to, we used to have the, before the days of Wikipedia, we had the whole like uh, encyclopedia in our, in our house in like, uh, like a hundred volumes or something like that. And as soon as a word would just come up where I just had to kind of, you know, never heard before, I just open up the encyclopedia and start reading about it. So I always wanted to um, learn as much as possible. And uh, within that, um, you know, I wanted my learning to be something which affects the world around me. And as much as I love cricket, as much as I love sport, and as much as I think sport is useful for helping people grow and stuff, um, it can never be the be all and end all. You know, as as AJ Sports tagline says, cricket creates character, right? Um, if sport did absolutely nothing to make you a better person, right? It would have no value. Uh, in my opinion, you know, just for fun, but it's not actually helping you develop. What's the point? So anyways, in regards to studies, I wanted it to be something that's actually useful. And um, so I kind of went into philosophy. <laughs> which is Tangible very... results at the end of that one. <laughs> yeah. So I went into, I, I like philosophy because it's like the study of knowledge, right? Um, how do you even know something, right? <laughs> so starting right from scratch, but then into economics, um, religious studies, um, uh, anything and everything which helped me understand the way the whole world runs, as opposed to, you know, just focusing on something very specific. Like, you know, you can go into medicine and specialize in a very specific field. But I'd like to see the politics behind it. I'd like to see the economics behind it. I'd like to see the philosophy, the philosophies which drive, you know, all of these policies. That, that, that I was always really interested in that. And the reason why I ended up going to Iran uh, in the pursuit of that is because um, Iran is... Uh, arguably the uh, capital for uh, Eastern philosophy okay. in the world, right? Um, also Islamic philosophy as well. Um, and for me, that was like a, a no-brainer that if I'm going to be someone who's always in the pursuit of trying to get the best knowledge possible from the best sources, I had to find the best teachers. I had to find the best schools. I had to be, you know, in the thick of it kind of thing, right? Um, and and that's, that's what eventually led me to Iran. And that's why I started, uh, you know, studying over there. How, did you, how do you compare the kind of Eastern and Western teaching? I don't know if methods is the right word, but um, structures. Yeah, it's a very, very interesting question. I mean, the most visible difference uh, between um, teaching here and there is that um, over here, it's about the books, the exams, the certificate you get at the end of it. Over there, it's about the relations that you build, right? Everything is 
based on relations. So for example, over there, it's very normal for um, students to go around to their teachers' houses and visit their families and have lunch and dinner with them, right? Okay. Over here, if you do that, the teacher may get arrested. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was like, this is unproven. Yeah. So that was a big thing. Like, you know, your teacher is not just your, you know, the person who's supposed to tell you what's in this book. They're almost like mentors, right? It's a lot more, it's a lot wider than that. So like, for example, when I, when I would be unwell, right over there, um, yeah. my teacher's wife would make, you know, soup for me and like get it delivered to my house, right? How, but how many students for each teacher are there? Because yeah, that's, so that's, that's a like, very personal yeah. relationship to have. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and that's the other thing, which is very different. So over there, a class would be, you know, one teacher to six students right okay. seven students that's it right um and uh and it's interesting uh, there's there's so many differences i don't i didn't even know where to begin so definitely the teacher student relationship right there's this there's this respect for a teacher and a respect for a student that the teacher gives that you just don't see over here right so for example um the way that a student would speak to a teacher right is 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 as if they're talking to their father Right. Okay. And then the way that the teacher would be speaking to the students would be as if like, you know, uh, it's an honor for me to have the opportunity to be able to teach you guys. Right. It's just it's, it's like a completely different world, you know, in that regard. And and, you know, most of the studies actually happen outside of the class. So you're expected to go to class knowing the lesson. And you literally go there to have a conversation with your teacher about any doubts or anything that you need to clarify or, you know, that's pretty much it. And then, you know, they, they may add a few points here and there, but a lot of the studies over there, they, they, you know, like, uh, so for example, if you want to test whether I have studied well or not, you don't yeah. give me an exam. You tell me to teach a class. Okay. But if you can teach the class, that means, you know, the material. Right, and you're actually able to explain it, and you can. Is that yeah. is that a product of essentially? So over like over in the UK, university is quite a life experience first, education degree perhaps second. Hmm. Is studying out in Iran as in that method you were as kind of mainstream as it were? Was it only a select group of people who actively want to learn do it, and that allows for that kind of relationship and small numbered classrooms, etc. For instance, I was in a I'd be in a lecture for three hundred people, so that. Um, yeah. If I'm ill, that the lecturer's wife isn't making 300 people soup. Like, that's not feasible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there are two different uh, there are two different strands of education over there. One is the what they call the traditional strand, and one is the more modern strand, right? Okay. So the modern strand is your 200 people in a lecture hall, and like you know, you're literally a roll number. You're not an eight, right? Wow. Um, okay. And uh, but but. Um, the thing is, the, the, the heavyweight scholars, they are produced from the traditional uh, strand, right? So, for example, uh, if you want to look at, like, my, my religious uh, studies, um, you know, teachers, um, they have a teacher tree. Like, you know, you have a family tree. They have yeah. a teacher tree which shows exactly who the teachers of their teachers of their teachers were, right? And you have like heavyweights in there. Like you're talking about, you know, people would be considered like equivalent to like the father of chemistry or the father of physics. And, 
And it's that kind of, you know, you don't just pass on, um, you don't just pass on information, right, to the next generation. You you train them up. It's 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 very different. I don't know if I'm able to like, you know, put it into words properly. So that's the traditional kind. So that's what I was involved in because I, um, in all my understanding of different educational theories and stuff, even what uh, the Western world is saying right now as well, um, that's actually uh, the better way to do it, <laughs> right? To have a less teacher a student ratio to yeah. uh, to uh, um, like exams aren't the way forward um working you know with your peers uh, to achieve stuff it's very um, kind of progressive what would be said over here would be like it's a very progressive way of learning as it were yeah and, and the thing is uh, in the west i mean this podcast i don't know it's not really about <laughs> you know the educational uh, method this is the lab the whole, you go on a lap you talk about anything yeah. So, like, you know, it, the, um, over here, the Western educational model was set up uh, on um, the Industrial Revolution, right? So, like, you had a factory, and uh, you have input, and you have output, right? And, and yeah. literally, um, the, the factory owners, uh, or the big business owners, wanted um, a workforce, right? That was the, that was the philosophy behind what the education system is right now right and right now is exactly the same by the way you know it's literally uh, it's not the pursuit of knowledge right it's the pursuit of uh we have this thing called the capitalist system uh can we how can we maintain it we need a certain workforce to specifically be focused on certain things right and do them effectively well right i mean that's not knowledge like that's in my opinion like that's that's like that that kills your pursuit of knowledge right um whilst on the other hand it's about look you grow you study as much as you like you fall in love with knowledge and then everything else will come right someone wise once said and i think i mentioned this to you as well <laughs> that uh pursue excellence and success will follow right is that, oh, oh, one thing i've learned from talking to you most is that you ever say a wise man once said it's almost invariably your dad who said it <laughs> the godfather yes <laughs> yeah but anyways like so i i feel like um uh i feel that over there the pursuit is for knowledge over here i feel that it's more for the career but even then as i said over there you have this modern kind of western not more i wouldn't call it uh, modern but this western way of pursuing education which is um which is uh, again, very similar to what we have over here, but I wasn't a part of that. You know, I was a part of the more traditional setup. So, what would you say in your experience? What would you say the biggest kind of misconceptions that that each nation has of one another, and what are the kind of biggest accuracies on the re reverse of that? Oh, it's that's a very you know I've been thinking all day about this. <laughs> like, what do I say? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a very, it's a very, very good question. Um, I think one of the things that the West definitely needs to understand about Iran is that the people do not want the system to fall tomorrow. Okay. Like one of the one of the things which is repeated in Western media and just generally what Western people think is that literally any day now the regime is going to fall because the people are against it. Right? I mean, I don't know like how to show that 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 is that that is so far from the truth right um yes not everyone is for the the government for sure right 
a very sizable amount of people are not for the government. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, just to give you an example, January the 1st, when um, America assassinated one of the um, uh, generals in Iran, right? Yeah. Um, if you just look at the turnout of people in every single city, right? You're talking millions of people turning out, right? Of their own accord, not because, you know, the government is forcing them to come. <laughs> like, right? you had, yeah, it, it, his funeral took place in four different cities and you had millions turn up in each of those cities, right? And then you're telling me that, okay, like these millions want the downfall. I, this general was known as one of the pillars of the whole regime, right? Like, you know, it's so, so that's one misconception. Definitely Western people need to understand that the people of Iran do not want the downfall of the regime. Yes, they want reforms, right? Yeah. But they're a very proud people, right? Um, especially if there's an external threat, they become one, you know, they could literally, you know, they would be in the process of killing each other. But as soon as there's an external threat, they'll be like, Let's, let's deal with this after. And both of them will first deal with the external threat, right? So there's this kind of weird kind of unity that exists between them. It's like, who do you think you are to come and solve our problems, right? If we want to overthrow the government, we'll do it, right? Don't get in our way, right? And whenever anyone tries to, it, 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 makes, the, it makes the government even stronger, right? It makes the Iranian government even stronger and more people support it because it just kind of... <sighs> Anyways... So <laughs> I remember you once mentioned something to me about it was misconstrued or misunderstood. Misunderstood is probably a better word with corruption. And you're referring to oh, yes. how the Western world thinks the Eastern world or Iran is corrupt. But you're saying, well, actually, it's just a difference in culture of how people kind of trust each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's um, well, there's two points that you've uh, reminded me on. Uh, one one of them is that um, uh like for us, it's very, it's like we kind of, we live in the British society, right? And then there's a certain system which is running the society, like the government, right? Iran is a two-tiered system. So there's the local government and then there's what's known as, probably best described as like the Islamic kind of uh, oversight, right? Or the Islamic supervisors, right? So, you know, would when... A really, uh, would a really bad analogy to draw there be like state-level government and federal government over in potentially, the US? Potentially, potentially. Um, yes and no. I mean, there, there's so many things which are uh, which are not the same. <laughs> right? I'd love it if you're going to be like, Iran is run just in the same way that the US is. <laughs> yeah, no, not quite, right? Um, so, so when a lot of people in Iran, the people on the streets, when they're taking out their anger, they're taking it out on the local government. Right? Because that's where they see the corruption as being. Uh, when it comes to the, the wider, like the overall kind of, you know, like the supreme leader and stuff like that, right? Uh, even those who are super against the government, right? They wouldn't necessarily be against the supreme leader. Like for, for them, he's like a father figure who doesn't necessarily involve himself in local politics unless it's absolutely necessary. He's not the queen, right? He does get involved much more than that. And obviously he's the one who decides like the foreign policy and stuff like that. Um, but uh, what, what people externally try and do is equate the anger people may have towards the local government corruption to just being anti the whole system overall, right? 
So that's one thing I wanted to clarify. The other thing is that, um, like, as you mentioned, like, you know, what we would classify as corruption, you really have to explain it to them to make them like think that, oh yeah, maybe this is corruption, right? <laughs> as I mentioned, like that society and generally Eastern society, um, a lot of it is built on relations, right? So what we would classify as being nepotism, for example, right? Yeah. Over, over there, for them, it would be like, look, merits actually come second. What comes first is, can I trust this person? Can they trust me? Do I know them well? Right. And if that all fits, okay, now I will use the extra effort to train them up to be able to do this job because that's more important. Right. So you have a business and you're like, this is my life. I, this is my livelihood. I need to make sure I trust them first and foremost, beyond anything that would be my son, my brother, my cousin, et cetera. And so that comes first and then you train them up afterwards, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Kind of like the age of empire. (laughs) 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 who's next in line for the throne now is it is it dibber's kids or does it does it go sideways or um we'll get onto that potentially (laughs) after maybe you want to ask garvin that actually like (laughs) but what's it called um uh but but yeah like when it comes to when it comes to uh when it comes to like what nepotism is and how that's corruption you know, yeah. yes, don't get me wrong. It's definitely abuse, right? So definitely like some people would, you know, just get into a high position, fire everyone else and, you know, get in their family for no apparent reason, right? But, um, but that's, not, that's not the whole picture, right? I'm not saying it doesn't exist. There's definitely corruption there. Definitely corruption. And there is fraud. There's, I mean, there was recently the... Uh, there were the, there was the the three Canadian bankers, uh, the three Iranian bankers who fled to Canada and took like eight billion dollars with them, right? Eight billion dollars on a country which is under crazy sanctions, right? Is not a joke, right? Um, so like there is definitely fraud, there is definitely corruption, but there is this like they have this nuance because it is different cultures and maybe things are just seen slightly different kind of thing, but yeah. <laughs> What about the other way? What when you're when you're in Iran and people are talking about life when you're living life in London, mm-hmm. are there things where they're like, that, that that sounds mental, that can't be right. And you're like, well, actually no, it's all right there. Or they they have this uh, inferiority complex towards the West, right? So for example, like you know, uh, in in Iran, uh, rubbish is collected every single day, right? Okay. So there's no such, there's no concept of bins over there. You literally have a small plastic bag, you put it outside your door and it's gone, right? And for example, when they have these huge rallies or demonstrations and stuff, as they are moving forward, there's a whole army of cleaners that cleans it. So literally as the demonstration finishes, the roads are clean, right? Wow, okay. um, and uh, very efficient. Yeah, and like, for example, you know, like local shopkeepers and stuff, right? So for example, outside AJ, right? Yeah. <laughs> they would have, a hose, which every morning, every night, they they just uh, put the hose out, broom it, and like it's all clean kind of thing, right? So they they have this concept of hygiene, right? And then they think that the West is like that times twenty, right? And I'm like, they collect the rubbish once every two weeks, <laughs> and, and again they just can't. They like, what do you do with it? It's like we put it outside our house, like in these bins, and they're like, 
what? <laughs> they just can't understand that. And obviously, you know, Eastern culture is known to use water for washing up when you go to the loo and stuff, right? Yeah. And, and, in, and, and in the West, it's like you use a tissue, right? And again, like they just don't, they're like, but that doesn't clean. Like, how, how yeah, can you use a tissue? The tissue, the tissue is something where when I've been challenged on it a few times, just or just people who've been sitting around, like, like you wouldn't, if you had a little bit of like, for want of a better expression, poo on your arm. You wouldn't just wipe it off with a bit of paper and then just carry on with your day. You'd be like, that's <laughs> disgusting. You've yeah. got you've got to get some soap on that. Yeah. So anyway, so like so so the Arabians definitely had this idea of the West that it's like heaven, right? And then when you start telling them that well actually <laughs> you know this concept that this West that you've seen in the movies and stuff, it's slightly different. <laughs> you think of Gotham, right? <laughs> like Gotham City, right? That's the West, right? I love the I love the fact this started as a conversation about the philosophical teachings of the East East versus the West and ended up being like Oh you tidy clean up after a shit <laughs> Positive things which they are shocked about are yeah. cues, right? <laughs> Over there in Iran, right? There is no concept of a cue, right? <laughs> I can't stress this, right? Like, you go to a bank, right? And you press this button, which says, this is your number, right? So you sit down, and when the number gets called out, you go, right? People walk in, they press the button, take their number and go straight to the counter. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) And it's like you have to fight to to get something done over there because there's just no cues whatsoever. And it's not, I can't, like, it's not disrespectful if you, you know, cut in, right? It's just what happened. What what, what does that mean on the roads then? Oh, gosh. Oh God, let's not even go to, I mean, let me just tell you one thing that happens on the roads. You know how over here, as you're approaching a roundabout, yeah. you stop, wait for the roundabout to be clear, and then you go on, right? Over there, you just drive on, and the person <laughs> on the roundabout is expected to stop, right? Not only that, let's say you want to take, the, you want to take a U-turn using the roundabout, right? So you want to go yeah. like fourth exit, right? Over there, you don't take the fourth exit you literally just cut and just, <laughs> just turn right on the roundabout. Don't tell it, turn right on the roundabout. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, that, that, that shows itself in, in, in other, over, over there, I'm like, by the way, you know, over there, even if someone, even if there is no queue, people will just line up, right? They just don't, they're like, don't they have anything better to do in their lives? <laughs> I was like, no, they like lining up, right? <laughs> always learning on the lap uh education first entertainment second that's that's my motto yeah give us a follow on spotify um quite a few of you are that's the only reason i've asked it i I wouldn't have done it before i've been too embarrassed but yeah keep going um and i'll speak to you next week Bye bye